Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Brian Moore from Harbour Capital. Managed to connect Tim on the call whilst sad, we... sad, sadly not no sorry <laughs> Brian please meet uh, Tim Price who's a fund uh, manager hi Brian hey Tim how are you good thanks how's things good good uh, Tim, I don't... Up for the for the moment you guys have a new uh, are in search of a new prime minister I guess you know things are just your average Thursday have you got any uh, do you find are you up for it Brian would you like to have the position I've already done uh, it myself. I, Paul, Paul's yeah, thinking exactly. of it. But. Yeah, you know, I think I'll pass. <laughs> I, I, I really do appreciate the offer, though. Oh no, it's, um, it's the least the least we could do. So I tell you, someone in your do you have any children? Maybe they might be be up for it. <laughs> yeah. Do you well, have any Do you have any yeah. pets? A cat? Yeah, I, I do. I have two pets, but it's my 15 year old daughter. If you ask her, she might take it up. Yeah, she, uh, she but, couldn't do any worse. But, but I, I think I think my sons uh, would probably say no. The question she should, the first question you should ask is, what are the hours? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And be a lot of dad, come here, dad, I need your help, dad. Uh, are we keeping all this, Paul? Uh, well, we can. Uh, yeah, we could. Why not? Why not? Brian, would you be happy for us to add this to the pod? Uh, it, it's up to you guys. I mean, I, I don't know. You know. Let's see, let's see how it all uh, comes out in the mix. Brian Moore of Harbour Capital, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, gentlemen. So before we get into your views on the market, tell us how you actually got into the, the financial markets. That was that's a really interesting story. I um, so I was in the military first. Um, I got out of the army and then um, I was decided to go to school in Chicago. And, and at that point in time, um, you know, the, the trading pits were still viable, you know, for, for people who kind of wanted to be hungry and, and work. Oh, you worked uh, in the hustle. pits. Fantastic. I started off as a runner for, uh, for a couple of locals. Uh, but before, let me take a step back on that. Paul, so Paul, I, I should, I should, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, Brian. Paul and I, I should add, are huge fans of uh, trading places. Exactly, so. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> one, one of my favorite movies. One of my, and I actually quoted it in a, in a thing I wrote for your internal internal use only. Frozen oh, Orange. Turn those machines uh, back on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, so I actually interviewed when I was in college, it was my senior year for a database programming job at a REIT. Um, didn't get the job, not surprising, but, uh, what I did get is about a week later, I got a call from a gentleman who was starting up uh, a trading operation backed by two locals in the S and P 500 futures pit in Chicago. Those two locals have since to move on and they, they are the founding, the founders, I guess, of jump trading. Um, the, the global high frequency powerhouse, um, Bill Dysoma and Paul Grannis. And so I was I was one of the first hires. Um, at that point, it was called Akamai Trading and really was drinking from like a fire hose for the first year. You're just trying to learn everything. And and um, and, and back then, they um, one of their final tests is uh, you walked in on the Monday morning and everybody was there early. And I got this big book handed to me. It says, Series 7, here you go. Your test is Friday morning. If you don't pass, don't come back. I was like, wow, okay, great, thanks. Um, and so I passed and 
fell in love with trading. Been in it ever since. Brilliant. And so how did you get from there to where you are now, Harbor Capital? So it was, it was funny. I had a guy in the NASDAQ 100 futures pit and, and back then the futures were going, I mean, we would have multiple limit ups and limits downs <laughs> sometimes in the same half hour. Um, and so plus and ça change, was, plus c'est la même chose. The more things that? change, the more things change, oh, the yes. more they remain the well, same. Exactly. Especially today. Right. Uh, except we weren't at these high levels back then, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it was, and he said, listen, he goes, I got a buddy that I stand next to. Uh, he's like, you know, Knight Capital is looking for, Knight Capital uh, is looking for somebody to kind of move to Minneapolis and, and, and kind of help run an ETF arbitrage, but also kind of a hedging desk. Uh, at that point in time, they were the number one or number two um, options market maker. And um, Bernie Financial Group was at the time. And so I moved up there and then they moved me after two years from Minneapolis to New York. And that's really kind of, um, you know, New York's where everything kind of, I guess, took off for me. And, and so, um, you know, from there, I've, I've worked at Morgan Stanley. I've run desks at Mizuho. Uh, I've run desks at RBC before joining, um, you know, the issuer side and, and, uh, and ending up at Harvard. So there's no time, no time served at Merrill Lynch because my own feeling is that everybody in capital markets has to have worked at Merrill Lynch for at least some period of time. It's called Tim, Tim's <laughs> well, I, Law. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I, and, uh, and I think I might actually, uh, I might actually meet that Tim. So when I moved to when when uh, Knight moved me to uh, you know the the, the the equity market making side, the entire ETF sales force that they hired was from Merrill Lynch. So I, I got Merrill Lynch indoctrination there. Oh, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> That's close enough, isn't it? Yeah. So, tell us about your so, ro your role at at Harbor. What is your main speciality? So, I, I primarily focus on capital markets, uh, and that really is it, it's funny. It, it's a it's a um, it's a position that nobody quite understands what you do until you kind of start talking to them. Uh, so, really, it, it's it's I view it as the being the the liaison or go between between not only you know, the firm's clients, the actual buyers and sellers of our products, but also the market makers to the portfolio managers and the sub-advisors, um, and also internally, just kind of, you know, working and, and, and making sure that, you know, the products that we're creating are stuff that can be uh, priced effectively and, and can be traded at, you know, at a tight market and, and uh, that there's not going to be kind of really anything that we, you know, that would go wrong. So tell, tell, tell us a bit more about what Harbor Capital actually does. Brian. We are a uh, we're a legacy mutual fund uh, manager uh, issuer, and we have uh, I'd say in the past year and a half, um, we've really kind of you know we've dedicated ourselves to to act to the active ETF space, um, fully transparent. So it, it's not um, it's not the semi-transparent or the non-transparent version. Um, and we've got Teddy, we've got eleven actually. We launched one last week. Apologies. Um, active ETFs in the, in the U.S. marketplace. What's your opinion on ETFs, Tim? I, I, it's it's not cut and dried because I think they have they definitely have a place. The where I suppose for me the 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 real value add of ETFs is in effectively sort of highly efficient um, markets where active managers can't really do an awful lot necessarily to diverse to, to to try and add alpha relative to the index. In inefficient markets, and obviously we can debate what efficiency even equates to, 
then there's far more role for active management. But in a let's take the bond market, please. Um, that's a sort of UK UK guild UK guild <laughs> yeah, no, insider no, no, no. insider joke there. Um, no, 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 it, no, it'll it'll, 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 it'll hit treasuries soon enough. Don't worry, Brian. Um, oh, the, <laughs> the the issue is that basically that the market's so basically efficient that it's almost impossible to outperform an index. So so why bother? So oh. then use an ETF for that purpose. Whereas for something where there's huge volatility, huge inefficiency, basically very few people really know what's going on. Um, then I, I would guesstimate that there's that much more potential for an ETF to deliver the goods because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a function basically of the potential role played by active versus passive management. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to dispute what you said. I think one of the, the um, uh, you know, and I'm not even going to say I like all ETFs that are out there as a former trader for 16, 17 years. There's some of them where you, you scratch your head and you go, wow. Um, but, but I do think what it, what it does is it brings, um, it, you know, or what the intent is, is really just to bring, uh, you know, any asset class or any product that, that the, the, the public, you know, would like to trade in a one ticket solution, um, mm. uh, and, and kind of bringing that to them and, and something that's not something that, you know, say you're a small manager that you can actually go out there and trade all these different bonds or you can trade all these different senior loans or, or whatever it may be. So I, I think it really was kind of born more out of, you know, here's a one ticket way to, to kind of gain exposure to a lot of different things. I mean, the, the problem we've, we've we had locally here in the UK in the last few weeks is that in the aftermath of the, personally, I think the, the, the quasi Quartang and Liz Truss, um, formerly of this parish um, mini budget of the 23rd of September, I think gets unfairly blamed for <clears throat> basically not least her demise, which as we know has just happened. But uh, it's it's it's. I think the bigger picture of really what's going on here is that what the, the the bond market in the UK has shown is that it's almost impossible to hike to basically to to try and drive interest rates up when they've been at zero for as long as they have been. So zero interest rates effectively become a bit like a black hole from which it's impossible for anything to escape. Uh, anyhow, so be that as it may, um, the, the, one of the things that the volatility in in particularly sterling and and the bond market has shown is that there are certain funds that are basically misconfigured. And I mean, specifically, we, we call them USITS funds, um, which would mm -hmm. be the equivalent of mutual funds or unit, what we used to be called unit trusts here or mutual funds in the States. Um, but where you've got daily traded uh, mutual funds, whereby they're actually underlying is actually property, commercial uh, property assets. So, you know, you've got an asset class that is fundamentally illiquid, but it's being sold to investors as a daily traded liquid device and that's clearly a mismatch there particularly when markets get distressed and there's distressed selling going on so that that, that i guess is a, a point of contention which is are there are there products out there that where the underlying investments should not be wrapped in a liquid liquidity providing wrapper um well i i mean i, I think it really kind of comes down to um I, I think you said it yourself i mean it's during, during periods of you know times of stress um, when, when things like this can kind of become, you know, I, I wouldn't say unhinged is the right word, but can become, you know, definitely there can be minor dislocations over brief periods. If you're a long-term investor, um, and, and you're willing to kind of hold through that, then at the, at the other side of that, then I think, you know, the, the spread between, between where those assets are valued and, and where the ETF is trading will come back. But yes, there is, there, there's certain things that will put in, you know, anything like a note uh wrapper here in the u.s i mean I, I i tell people i'm like you own you know senior unsecured debt 
like you own a, 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 a you know a piece of paper from you know a bank, not exactly anything on the underlying. So um, there, there's again as a former trader, there's there's ones where you kind of scratch your head and you go, this this is kind of tough, um, and and it becomes even very tough to to kind of trade them. The uh, the, and, the, the line I have. The line I have in mind is, is a quote I heard in at a conference shortly after the Lehman failure in 2008. And someone at an investment conference said, if you're a distressed seller of an, of an illiquid asset, it's worse than being trapped in a crowded cinema that's on fire. It's like being trapped in a crowded cinema that's on fire. And the only way you can get out is by persuading someone outside to swap places with you. Which I thought was quite a nice, <laughs> quite a nice it, line. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, um, yeah, and I'm not going to say I, I totally disagree with that line. Um, that you know that that really is you have to find um, you know you, you have to find kind of somebody who believes that that they have conviction that you know the price that that you're willing to sell the asset to them is is you know I guess a good price. So you talked about. You know, I, I think. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. no please, please, please finish your point. Sorry. Well, I, I just think that, you know we, there's just you know like, I mean I'm going to go. We can look at something like, you know, cotton. There, there was an ETN on cotton. Um, you know, who really? I mean, who's really trading that? That's a, that's something that it, you know, can kind of go bad over time. It can't it has to sit in the warehouse, and you're just trading kind of notes on an index. Um, I mean, I, I do think there's certain things that you kind of again, you scratch your head and you go, why? Would, why did we put this in a one-ticket solution? Um, but I guess some issuer along the way thought that there was need for it. But I think would like to think that the capital markets, uh, and this is not my role, but the capital markets as a whole will eventually kind of weeds those um, those funds out. Now I know we've seen great calling in the in the uh, U.S. listed ETF universe here within the past two years, and I think that's just you know a lot of people you create things and you you create them sometimes with a, a six month to a five year time horizon, saying I think this is needed, um, and then if it's not supported, you know it goes away. You cancel the fund. So in terms of active, an active ETF or a passive ETF, how are they actually different in terms of how they're managed? So in the, in the case of a passive index ETF, and we can take the FTSE 100, um, what ends up happening is there are a, a set of prescribed rules um, you know, the, to maintain index inclusion. And if you violate one of those, then you know, the index provider will send out an announcement basically saying this is going to change. Here's the data it's going to change. And here's, you know, possibly the one or two stocks that will be included and they'll give you an updated weights. And so what ends up happening then is if you're a market maker or you're somebody active in the ETF, you would then, you know, realign your your underlying holdings to make sure that you're, you're fully hedged. Um, or if you're the portfolio manager, you're going to go out for the ETF, you're going to go out and do that as well. And the target's the close. So they're going to, they're going to, whether they do it themselves or whether they give the orders to the trading institution, um, they're going to basically say, I need to sell this one that's going out and I need to buy these ones that are coming in. Um, where, and that's really kind of how it works in the passive world, right? You have that, you have that index benchmark that, the only time you need to change is really when the index changes. On the active world, uh, it's a little bit different in that you have what the active manager puts out as the portfolio is what it is they want to own. And when something like that changes, then that is gets reflected um, in, in the daily baskets that go out to the APs and to the, to the market making community. And that is, you know, you, you're going to see the weight, say, maybe on, we'll use Tesla 
you know, I'm not pro or against it, but we're going to use Tesla. Yesterday it was 10%. Today I want to make it 9%. And you'll see that updated weight go come out in the in the basket. So the market makers, when they upload those files, they know, okay, the weighting at Tesla dropped 1%. Here's, you know, these other stocks picked it up. Um, and then they can adjust their portfolios or it's up to them. They can choose, you know, to kind of maybe get more aggressive on the sell side if they're long ETF and trade it and trade out of that position and kind of get it down and, or net it off. So, um, really, it, it's kind of it's a very similar process um, with an active ETF, though. It just it can occur more frequently. So do you actually report every change? Is it transparent? We do. Yeah. So and uh, would that be internally or is that to the exchange or how, how does that work? So that is we put out um, we put out nightly files creation redemption files. And so you'll be able to see and, and we put out a, a number of different files. We put out uh, a pricing basket, we'll put out a creation basket, we'll put out a redemption basket. And so you can see the, the changes reflected in there. So at the moment, obviously inflation is the big watchword. What, mm -hmm. what do you think the best ways are to hedge against inflation right now? Well, I, I think... Um, Kind of getting back to something that was said earlier. I mean, I, I think we're coming out of a period, um, you know, where we haven't had to deal with inflation, and so I think we can all kind of look back in our in history and say, well, this is typically what's happened. But I think we're seeing a different scenario this time around. We're seeing different dyna market dynamics, um, and, and so I, I don't think you know. I, I think we've got an all weather hedged inflation fund. Um, you know, Hedger, H-G-E-R in the U.S., and I think that does that does a fine job. But um, commodities typically, if we're going to go research-oriented, have been one of the better ways to kind of hedge inflation. But I think you've seen from the volatility within the past, you know, six months to a year that um, a lot of risk managers have kind of come in and been like, let's take some of these positions down, plus throw in China's zero COVID policy, uh, which has kind of definitely dampened their usage of metals. And commodities, and I think you've you know you've you've taken what has traditionally been an excellent um, spot on inflation hedge, and, and kind of made it uh, at least over the six six month period something that's less than 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 you know perfectly correlated. So uh, right now, I'm not actually sure there is one because tips I don't think have, have kind of proven to be uh, an excellent hedge as well. I mean, on a point of uh, comparison, I, mean, I sort of alluded to the disaster of the UK gilts market earlier, but I was really struck as a, a former bond salesman that there's a 50-year inflation-linked gilt, which is equivalent of a, of a US tip, Treasury Inflation Protected Security. Uh, and this is the uh, a UK index-linked gilt maturing in 2073. Between January and September, that bond fell by 85% um, in price. <laughs> This is a risk, so-called risk-free asset. Wow. Yeah. And in the in the the, the three days following the uh, the quasi Quateng mini budget that now never was because it's basically been cancelled out, it lost a it contrived to lose a further fifty percent of its value. Were you so you say were you, you say commodities are, uh, are volatile <laughs> compared to compared to gilts. I mean, it's it's extraordinary well, world we're living in. A hundred percent. And I, and I think um, one of the reasons that, you know, I joined Harbor is because I think we're going out and I, and I really believe this. I think we're coming out of a period where we, we've kind of spent in this this um, central government for induced low interest rate environment where it was kind of, OK, you, you know, we're not going to we're not going to be marching down and trying to do uh, what Volcker did. 
I'm not saying Powell and committee do that again, but I mean, you know, 75, 75 and 75. And, and now the, the, you know, the Fed funds futures are pricing in two more. Um, yeah, this is a different world. This is a different dynamic. And I think you've got added global volatility that we haven't seen. Um, and, and, and it really sets up, I think, a, a nice space for active management to, to really come back in and, and, you know, and one of the things when we're talking to clients and they'll say, what is the difference between passive or smart beta and active? Um, really, it's that you've got somebody watching the product. You've got somebody watching the markets for you. Um, and so, you know, if there's going to be a wholesale change, we obviously let the market makers know, but we haven't had that yet. But it's 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 having those extra kind of, you know, eyes on eyes on the markets and eyes on your products that I think really um, are, are beneficial during these times. So, what what do you? I mean, obviously, nobody's got a crystal ball, and no one's going to hold you to to market calls. But what's your you, feeling about? You don't. Pardon. I had, I sold mine the other day. Uh, I, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say we we've had um, it's thirty five years since the nineteen eighty seven stock market crash. So around about this time, everyone gets a bit nervous in equities. But last week's CPI number saw a very big turnaround. I, I personally was thinking that the dollar was getting a little bit too strong. The dollar index around 115 was kind of topish. And I've been looking for signs for things to turn around. Yields haven't really turned, but the dollar's stalling, not against the yen, but against other currencies. And mm-hmm. the equity markets have certainly reacted in what I would call a, a very sort of risk-on way. So there is potential that we've seen a load. We don't normally see a crash when everybody's looking for a crash. You normally see a crash when everybody's kind of partying and, and um, celebrating the amount of liquidity in the market and how, how much money they're making. So where do you think we are? Do you think we are about to turn higher and will, will the equity markets continue to rally into next year or do you think there's more downside ahead? Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to use some of my, my trading, I guess, for, you know, phrases or sayings, um, the market <laughs> goes in the direction that causes the most pain. That's true. Um, and I think what you saw over the last options expiration was people really, especially institutions preparing for downside. Um, they were pretty bared up for lack of a better word. And so what happened is, is you hit 3,500 in the S and P and it was, it was akin to throwing or kicking a, you know, a soccer ball against the wall and having it come right back at you. Um, it, it bounced pretty hard. And I think you saw short covering. I think you saw technical um, analyst firms kind of, uh, you know, fuel that, that, that rebound. I think what, what's happening now is everybody's obviously very bearish. Um, I know, you know, there's several people on, on Wall Street, some of the major banks that are still calling for further downside. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of, I think we're set up for a little bit of a, of a nice bear rally. Um, you know, bear market rally. I don't think we're by any means through the woods, um, but but I do think that you know when you were 200 points lower in the S and P, I think that you know the the bulls and bears were kind of looking at each other, going, "Okay, you make the move. No, you make the move." Well, I you know what are we going to do here? Uh, and when it kind of ripped up, I think you you've got the bears you've got the bears off guard right now, and and uh, you know I think you know earnings are coming in better than expected. I think that's fueling. Um, definitely fueling, you know, kind of further upside here in the U.S. And I think, you know, it, it'll be, we'll get through that as long as earnings kind of stay where they're at. I think we've got continued upside in the short term. 
turning back. Now, to whether the, we get the Santa Claus rally or not, I, I, I'm going to, I don't necessarily know if that holds out. Uh, I, I do think we'll probably get some sort of a downturn before then, but um, yeah, I think right now during earnings seasons, we're, we're looking fairly good. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny how quickly Christmas comes around each year. Um, it is. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about um, something that Tim had said a while back about you were looking, I believe, ro- I think you were rotating out of copper. I can't remember where you were rotating, Tim, but you were, it looked very, it's a very prescient move given the fact that copper's gone down. And this whole situation with China demand, obviously the stock market there's done really badly. But at some point, this demand will return because they'll overdo it and realize that they've got to either start spending or or other areas will start to pick up the slack and realize that these commodities are valuable. And that whole uh, paradox of, well, if we've got inflation, why not have, why have we got a rally in base metals? So sure. I think that question, yeah, I think, I think, I think the, I think that the event was, it was probably the first during the first lockdown back in 2020 and Killian Connolly, my, my business partner and I, Sort of, we're chatting over the phone as sort of trying to work out what on earth to do. And the the prevailing sense we had was that, you know, the central banks were going to follow the playbook, which is, you know, if in doubt, print money, which is effectively what happened. So we had furlough and we had everything else, you know, huge amounts of borrowing, huge amounts of stimulus of one way or another. And so what we did in anticipation of that, uh, which I don't think was necessarily unique to us, I'm sure plenty of people did it, was we decided to rotate out of industrial cyclical stocks into basically precious metals specifically on the basis that logically you would expect the the, mon- the so-called monetary metals to do comparatively well in a period of explicit sort of state inflation. Hmm. And either way, that, that, that sort of, I mean, it, it, industrial stocks more generally in, in favor of, say, more more sort of precious metal related and, and commodity related uh, things. And that, that, that uh, certainly for the duration of the balance of 2020 worked quite well. One thing I'd, I'd ask Brian about, one thing we've been talking with clients at some length about this year is there's a ratio we look at, and I'm sure I've used it several times on the pod in the past. Uh, I think it's the Bloomberg Commodities Index <clears throat> relative to the S&P 500, uh, which is basically effectively at pretty much all time lows. The, the market is basically saying that commodities and commodities stocks in particular have never been realistically this cheap, certainly for 50 years or more relative to, to broad stock broad, broad stock indices, specifically the S&P 500. The market is basically saying that commodities are, uh, the market's basically giving away commodities stocks for free. Whereas you would think, given the inflationary outlook, that people would be biting your arm off to, to try and secure them. So something 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 is not quite right here and i suspect that this this is going to turn out to be this huge anomaly is going to turn out to be a massive opportunity no i mean i i would agree with you wholeheartedly i mean i think we we've had kind of a couple of different um scenarios weighing on the commodity space both you know the metals themselves and and the and the stocks and i think um it's something where i don't think you'll be hard pressed to find somebody to disagree with this statement that we do not have the supply to meet the projected demand, um, and, and so it's it's so it's one of those things that it may not happen, you know, tomorrow, may not happen first part of twenty twenty three. But I think you're right. I think we're all going to look back and go, wow, we that was that was one for the ages. We should have actually kind of, you know, definitely allocated a lot more to it. And the extraordinary thing uh, seems to be the sort of the bigger picture narrative is that you have the West, which is basically 
I would say is like in the terminal stages of, of seeing just how far you can financialize stuff and financialize basically paper promises and state big state promises versus the sort of the the new bricks, if you like, that that have basically a lot of the material and energy wealth. And you know, at some point, Jerome Powell is going to have to appreciate that you can't print energy. I mean, I think I think the world's going to have to appreciate that. Right. I mean, I think that's something that we're all kind of coming to, to, to terms with. And, it, and I mean, I would probably you, you probably would prefer not not to sort of be drawn into political things. But it, it strikes me that um, whoever is advising the Biden administration probably needs to go back to d- diplomacy school. <laughs> uh, what, what I will say is um, it, it, it's very funny. I, I find um there's a lot of talk about, you know, we, we need, I know California passed, uh, I don't even think you can buy a combustion lawnmower anymore in California or a weed whacker or anything else to do your lawn. I think they all have to be battery powered. Um, and, 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 and I find it really interesting that everybody's talking about battery power, battery powering, and, and I'm all for saving the environment. As I mentioned, I got three young kids and I want to see them be able to do everything. But it, it, what, what I really kind of, you know, just throws me into, I, I can't understand this loop is, we have energy problems and the, with the grid well, we can't. So where do we expect to kind of get all the surplus energy to all of a sudden power up everything that's battery operated? Um, and I'm sure there's the research out there. And I think I read about it at one point in time, but it's, I, I don't think we have the infrastructure. I don't think we have, um, or I don't believe we do, uh, the, you know, the capability for to, to, to turn off in a, in a 15 to 20 year period everybody from using fossil fuels and, and then switch it over. I mean, I would love to think that that could happen, but yeah, the, the installed uh, base is just so huge. You just can't be replaced. Uh, yeah. I, yeah I, I, I mean, I have my doubts. My part, personal doubts. Part of the problem is, is that um, it's not just a production problem. It's also a storage problem because you have in very simple terms, um, I, I would suggest following someone like Doomberg for, for the real insight um, because they are like, energy experts extraordinaire but but you when you're producing energy you can't store it and the main problems come from the grid not being able to provide much enough electricity at certain peak points and so it's how do you manage that so that people would start using electricity or whatever overnight but like you say this whole business of let's get electric everything implies that 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 that, it, that that is just somehow green in itself which it isn't because of course you've got the battery which will then all the energy that's required to make the battery in the first place batteries and then those batteries degrade and then what do you do with them once they've passed their their useful life they just have to go into landfill that doesn't sound great um, or what can you do with them can you recycle them um, but the, the the really the really strange thing about this is that you can store energy and stored energy is available in things called oil and gas and the the, the woke green nazis won't let us use them anymore yeah or, or i think it's got to be nuclear hasn't it i mean that's where the the real i mean that when you know about e equals mc squared how much energy there is and can be produced there is bountiful amounts of it if we just use nuclear and it's safer than it ever was it's just it's not politically um and it sh- a situation like this should make it so that people look more closely at using it and it's only when people's energy bills get yanked up for whatever reason that that 
people take notice of it when it starts to hit them. But, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, I, I, plus, I, mean, I also think that there needs to be a, um, you know, a major improvement in, in batteries, period. Um, I, I know personally, um, you know, having grown up in, in the South where, you know, if you wanted to drive somewhere, it was three hours, three to four hours. I can't imagine loading my family up in a car uh, and then sitting there going, guys, we have to wait for, you know, an hour two hours for the car to charge up here at this station before we can kind of continue. Um, and so there needs to be, I don't know if you make them swappable, but there needs to be something because the, the, you know, I, I think electric vehicles make sense around an urban environment, but they don't make sense for long-term at this point in time. Um, you know, and unless you've, you've got, you know, you've got the time to sit there and kind of, you know, wait for your car to, to charge up. Yeah. So I think there's a number of things going kind of uh, against the space and, and um, maybe I'm just not forward thinking enough. I don't know, but there seems to be kind of a practicality, you know, thing that that's keeps things from, from kind of, I guess, moving on. And, and as you, as you mentioned to me, I think we we've done um, by not investing, you know, in, in oil and gas production, I think we've, we've got an interesting dilemma on our hands um, that should, you know, I mean, I, I remember reading, oh, peak oil was here. Peak oil you know, consumption was here. I, who, I mean, who's to say we've, we've hit that point, but I do know that we haven't, we haven't invested enough in actually drilling and, and kind of creating new, you know, new sources of supply. I know from anecdotal evidence from a local workman who's got a, an electric, he switched from a diesel van to an electric one to, to try and be green. And he says he's on it, got it on a lease and he just wants to get rid of it as soon as possible. He said in the summer he couldn't turn the air conditioning on because it would have drained the battery. So he was hot. He had to be hot in the summer and he's got to be cold in the winter because he can't turn the heater on because it'll drain the battery. He's got to go out and do a job and then come back and queue up at sort of nine o'clock at night to get it charged up for half an hour before a job that he has to do the next day. And then he's got range anxiety about whether he's actually going to be able to get there and back. And so when he finishes a job where he may have to drive a long way, he's then got a, got the added problem of trying to find somewhere to charge for the next day's work. And it's, it just goes on and, Get, get woke, get woke, go broke. Uh, yeah, so it's um, for certain, as you quite rightly say, Brian, for certain specific situations, it works extremely well. Like if you were just in the lo driving in your local area or you were operating a milk float or something it, or, or you're just driving in a short school run or something like that, it's, it's brilliant, okay? It's great. May, maybe it does work well. Although why electric cars are so damn expensive, I just... I can't square that circle. That doesn't make any sense because we've had this technology for a very long time. I know I've said that before, but it's it's basically an, an electric motor and a battery, which is less complicated than a... If you, anybody knows anything about combustion engines, they are extremely complicated. There's so many moving parts. There's so much that can go wrong. But a, a battery and an electric motor is something you can build in a school lab. So, um, so given that... It's clearly not the answer. The answer's got to be hydrogen. And I remember seeing a uh, an electric car rally in the desert 
and thinking, well, how on earth is that going to work? And they had a hydrogen generator there. And I thought, well, that's that's your answer, isn't it? It's got to be, it's got to be hydrogen or some other form, even though there may be an improvement in battery technology at some point. The lithium-ion battery is quite an amazing piece of technology, but it's also pretty damn dangerous as well. And like you say, does need improving. Yeah, I, I just think there's a lot of infrastructure to, to get us to where we are now, to where the, the visionaries see us at in, I don't know, 15, 10, 15 years. Um, and um, I, I just remain cautious that, you know, we, we would be able to kind of get everybody, A, everybody on board and B, be able to kind of achieve the, you know, said goals. I, I think at the moment there's a, a combination of the of both would work very nicely. It's just that the governments in their inverted commas wisdom are just trying to force everybody down the, this road, if you excuse the pun. And it's it's really not the answer. It's too it's it's a too it's too immature. The te- the technology is good, but it's not good enough. And like we say, it's got certain use cases, but that that's the trouble. In in theory, all these people talking about green can can say yes it's better for the environment we're not even sure if it is i mean where does that electricity come from they've got to still generate that electricity from somewhere and so it may not necessarily be green it may be a coal fired you know coal powered you know generator that's that's making it in the first place so it, you, all you're doing is displacing so it's it is quite a complex problem um but I think they'll have to just rain back on it. Well, quite, quite clearly. And um, Tim, what, what do you think will happen? Do you, can you? Start- I, think, I think I think you're right. I think people have to. I think one of the tragedies that we're living through is just just you just thought that just after the the major the the, the major geopolitical developments of this of this of the twentieth century, things like World War One and World War Two, and the the apparent basically defeat of communism to to capitalism in the in the 80s and the Berlin Wall came down now the west seems to be determinedly going after big state controlled command and controlled economic management which as the history of communism shows is an unmitigated disaster and you wonder why this is happening because there's there's no logic to it the the the, the, the message from from Reagan from before Reagan was the the best possible thing that government can do under any circumstances, get out of the way. The, the last thing you want is government interfering in markets or economies. And so arguably the reason the, the world is in the mess it is, is because the, the big state is back and it's determined to destroy everything. Yeah, that's... Um, well, I, yeah. They, they've, uh, at least in the US, I don't think we've proven that we can do much. Um, and, and, and kind of when it... You know, the government definitely has. I think it. You know, I'd like to think it means well, but sometimes following through on on, on everything is is kind of gets a little gets a little tricky and haphazard in, in areas, without a doubt. But I mean, as Friedman said, if if the, if, the, if the federal government was in charge of uh, the Sahara, pretty sure there'd be a, pretty soon there'd be a shortage of sand. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not going to say I disagree with that. But at least in but the here, US, here's the kicker, though, Tim. Everybody'd be wondering where it went, and and we wouldn't be able to say. So that's that's the real interesting part. That's true. But 
But at least in the US, where obviously where you're, you're from, is um, you've got your own energy security. I mean, when you're in Europe, we are reliant on overseas sources. And it's it's an increasing... I mean, during the, the, the 2008 crisis, I thought it was just completely obvious that we should spend money on our own energy security and food security as well. And it was clear that there were... That with what was going on with the financial markets and the fracturing potential of the different economies within Europe, you could see that the the that the, the trend towards unification was reversing. And when that happens, you've got to literally look after your own. I mean, Scotland is on the brink of of separating as well. They always seem to want to, and that there is this this trend. That, that makes it so we've got to look after our own security. We can't have our energy companies being owned by overseas companies. It's just a security risk. And it's not like we haven't got the brains to do it here. We've got some amazing universities that produce some incredible technology. It just kept get, getting bought out by American companies. And so we should be spending money. If the government's going to spend money, instead of just spending it by putting money in people's pockets and saying, okay, energy bills are high, let me take that off your hands, why don't they just spend it on something that has long-term value to the the whole of the country for decades into the future? And it, I don't know why they don't think like that. It just it seems so obvious. Uh, I'll vote for you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think, Paul, you, you've kind of, Got your own answer there. I, I think you know because it is the politicians. I think there's there's a short term dynamic and view strategy versus you know what's long term or what's really needs to be done for the long term viability, right? I mean, I, I think you know you pointed out obviously um, higher energy prices. Well, what can I do now in the short term? Well, I, you, you can you can put caps on it. You can give people money. Um, all of those things, oddly enough, just fuel inflation more. Um, but I think, you know, it's the, listen, we're going to go out on a, on a, on a 10 year plan and here's what we need to do. I think that's much kind of harder to do in today's world. I think we're all, uh, as a global society, you know, our attention spans have, have gone away from 10 years, five years. And it's now where, you know, where are we going to be at next week? What can we do now? That's absolutely true. And what amazes me is the way, I don't know why more people don't sort of speak about how the government say we haven't got enough money for the NHS, we haven't got enough money for this, that and the other. And then all of a sudden a pandemic comes along and they start printing money like it's like they, you know, it, there's an endless supply of it. And I suppose in their eyes there is. So when it suits them, they can just do what they want. When they need to go to war, yeah, let's let's print some money. And But when when there's... <laughs> When there's answers to questions that that should be should be made when there are no crises, they don't seem to want to use the money for that those good reasons. I don't know. Maybe that's just the nature of politics, which is obviously something that I'm I'm less interested in and more interested in markets because I think though at least with markets you you kind of you know what the outcome is. The you know. I mean, when I say the outcome, you know what the objective is. The objective is to be as efficient as possible, to be as best as as the best within a certain field, and to beat all the competition. With politics, it doesn't seem to really matter whether you're good or bad. Um, you're just going to be in office for a few years, and then it's someone else's problem. I mean, I, I think that's that's in in my humble opinion, and, and 
you know, I'm reminded daily that nobody cares for the most part. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think that's it. I think we've 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 uh, we've set ourselves up for more of a short term um, fix world than we have, you know, being able to do the hard work and, and kind of what needs to get done over longer trajectory. So what, what plans do you have at, uh, at Harbor Capital? What are you looking at for future products? Um, and are you looking at certain trends to create, do you look at certain trends in markets to create ETFs or, or do you just listen to what's going on in the industry? How, how do you make decisions as to what to create? Well, I, I think we do. You know, it, it's it's really kind of a group um, thought. And I think you've got product team comes together. You've got obviously the CIO. You've got our research uh, mass team, multi-asset solutions, and and kind of then it then it becomes also the, you know these are the these are the areas that we like. These are the areas that we think would be interesting in the marketplace. This is what fills the void um, that's needed out there. And then you go out and work with subadvisors and or you know boutique managers and go, okay, who who's adding alpha out here? You know who's doing something different. Who's looking at, who's looking at the world through a different prism, and and kind of, you know, can generate alpha on it. Has proven that they can generate on a sustained basis, and is differentiated. And, and you know, it is something that you know is something that's not another me too type product. And so I think that's one that's that's really you know we try to combine those two areas um, and come up with products. I think we've got, you know, I'm. I'm not going to plug them again, but I think we've got kind of, you know, another commodity ETF, RENW, that really does try to be kind of an energy transition. We're not, you know, I want to talk about we're not pro or against fossil fuels. We need them. We all realize that. But if we're going to go down this journey over the next decade plus of how do we get to green energy, what are the things that we need? And so that's that's one of our funds. Um, I think we've got, you know, we use a, a subadvisor in, in the UK, Blue Cove does a great job for us on kind of using AI in a lot of the fixed income you know, world when they look at things and bonds. So, um, yeah, I think it's really, you know, where can we find the best match between where, you know, areas that we see the market needing exposure, needing leaders and, and finding, you know, those boutique managers um, who have that. I was struck recently by some data that suggested that the, for the first time, I think in history, the developing markets now accounted for a greater share of world GDP than the so-called developed markets. If that's true, I mean, do you, do you have any philosophical limitations or can you sort of put together something that can cater to, you know, let's say a sort of a brick, a brick style you know, orientation or an emerging market style fund? Uh, well, I mean, I think if, if we can find the managers for that and, and obviously do so in a, you know, in, in a, in a, you know, logical manner that, that makes sense, um, then, and would be accepted by the marketplace Then I think, sure, that's, that's definitely something. I mean, I, I think if you look at the EM space as a whole, that is, that is, uh, you know, that is a, an excellent space for an active manager to shine. Right. I mean, I think you said it earlier on, on in the, in the, you know, on the podcast. It's right, I mean, right, right. With an inefficiencies. A hundred percent. And I, and I think that is, um, that is an excellent place for, you know, an active manager to shine and, and, you know, be able to, to, to really find the, the nuggets, you know, and, uh, and kind of the, you know, the diamonds in the rough. So as a, as an old hand in the financial markets, and I mean that in the, in the nicest possible way, of course, um, what do you think? Talking of- to Tim or me. <laughs> 
Um, what do you think? I'm, I'm, a, I'm an international hand model. My hands are, my, my hands are graced, graced Esquire and GQ magazine. Well, there you go. You got that one on me then. Okay, go ahead. I yeah. apologize. Um, so, uh, so as an old hand at the financial markets, um, going from the trading pits to where we are now, what do you think of the cryptocurrency space? Um. I find it interesting. I'm not going to, um, I I found it as a way that I I kind of, uh, I mean, first, let me be honest, I missed the complete run up because I was just scratching my head trying to figure out what it is they did. Um, I I think it it is an interesting way and it does, there is probably a financial use for it for banks kind of being able to transfer money or, or kind of, you know, along those lines. I thought it was a differentiated kind of risk on product. I think you're seeing the, you know, the, the uh, that being borne out. What I do think is most interesting lately is that the institutions um, are, are kind of looking at it. And whenever that happens, I think you, you bring on two things. You bring on kind of institutional market makers who are really going to kind of increase correlation to the broader markets. And I think you're seeing that being borne out on a daily basis. Um, and then I think you open yourself up for scrutiny. I think you open yourself up for, you know, governments getting involved in taxes and, and everything else and kind of regulation. And I think when that happens to the space, all of a sudden it's going to look drastically different than it does now. So I think, you know, I see it going through that process, uh, you know, as we speak. And I think you're you're kind of, you know, in the in the in the beginning stages of it. That's very interesting, uh, Tim. Just before we um, go to media picks, because I'm mindful of the time, the the restrictions that we've got here. Was there anything else you wanted to ask? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, fantastic. Well, Brian, I'm going to put you right on the spot now because uh, I should have actually warned you before about the media picks round. Um, we At this point, we usually share a book, a film, or something that we've absolutely loved or hated. To give you a moment to think, uh, perhaps I could ask you, Tim, first. Would that be all right? Sure. Okay. So, Tim, what's so, your pick? I recently went with a, a, a making of film documentary about a film that never got made it was a uh, Hodorowsky's Dune that was the rights of which were the rights to which were acquired by this cult Spanish director in the in the uh, early 70s and then despite having hired a number of people and having had a, a reasonable budget to develop the project the thing that never got made so it's the, the 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 best film that never got made according to some sci-fi aficionados with, with on following on the same track, the one I'm going to cite this week is um, a documentary I saw over the weekend called "The Beast Within: The Making of Alien." Oh, so fantastic. I would imagine that that Brian has probably seen Alien, which is one of the all-time <laughs> best uh, horror sci-fi films that is. But when you watch this documentary, which was made in 2003, you're struck by just the the the, the sheer high standard of the the production behind Alien. Alien is not a B-movie uh, sort of cheapo by any stretch of the imagination. Alien is like, now it looks like an art film. Mm, and the, the amount, the effort that was de- dedicated to the set design, to the production generally, to the music, to the, the whole look and feel of the thing. And The Beast Within, which runs to nearly three hours, is a really great reminder of just how much creative an intellectual effort went into the making of uh, what what people might dismiss as as just another horror film. But it's called The Beast Within: um, The Making of Alien. That's amazing, Tim. You've been knocking it out of the park with your picks. That's really, really great. I can't wait to see that. Um, 
So, Brian, did you have time to find one? Uh, I, I did, yes. And it okay. was uh, it was inspired by my kids uh, who were getting into crew, uh, especially my, my daughter who's, who's taking it up her freshman year of high school. Uh, it's Boys in the Boat. It was something that was mentioned to me. Um, it was It's about nine young men in 1936 out of, uh, I believe, University of Washington um, who trained and, and went to the Berlin Olympics and, uh, and won a medal, won gold. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, I think it was a, it was a very kind of inspiring book. Um, I thought it was very insightful. It, it's, it's funny. There's, there's a lot of good stories out there, um, you know, that, you know, that, that you just kind of don't, don't hear about um, that kind of get pushed aside. And I think we're at a period of time where, uh, you know, something motivational, something kind of uplifting is, is always, it's always refreshing. Brilliant. What, what's that? Is that on Netflix or, or Amazon? Or it's uh, so I think you can find the documentary there. There's a brief, one. I think, I believe George Clooney is actually producing a movie that's supposed to come out within the next two years on it as well. Um, but the book is also an excellent read. Fantastic. Now that's brilliant. Look, I know we, we are sort of going over time. So I just want to give you time to um, tell us your handles, where people can find you. Uh, whether you're on Twitter, et cetera, just before we, we, we wrap up. So I am, I'm, I'm kind of a social media ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, really not too much on it. Um, well, Halloween I, is I, coming. I, so that's, that's, that's entirely in keeping with the season. That's fair. I, I, I think I, I do plan on getting a little bit more uh, active on LinkedIn, uh, sharing insights and, uh, and thoughts. So be uh, Brian Moore 71. I believe it's my LinkedIn handle. Right. And your firm's web address? It's Harbor Capital. It's harborcapital.com, I believe. Yeah, harborcapital.com. Brilliant stuff. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. And it's been really good fun. And hopefully we can have you back and we'll get your views of the markets in a, in a few months' time. Love to. Let me know. It was great speaking with you guys today. Our pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.